Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and this is Vault episode. It originally aired uh, October 15th, 2020, and it's part three of our series on the Minotaur. Let's jump right in. He lives there. From there, he plots my destiny and schemes to usurp my throne. His eyelids of stone taunt me, insatiable Minotaur. My dreams chafe against his horns. In my dreams, I enter the labyrinth. I'm there alone, unchained. The scepter bends in my fist, and he comes before me, monstrous, sweet, monstrous, free, and I can no longer govern my dreams. So many deliberations. Wait for the day when the world of men will harbor my story in blood's secret river. You have not heard me yet. Kill me first. Now you provoke me, as if you're plotting some kind of scheme. I've made up my mind. Ultimate freedom is fostered by that blade which you hold in your fist, the same as a sudden parting of waters in the ocean deep. What do you know of death, grantor of profound life? Look, there is only one way to kill a monster, and that is to embrace him. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of The Minotaur and The Labyrinth. We're, we're coming out of the dark at you once again. Uh, so those opening selections were from a play called The Kings by Julio Cortazar, who's an Argentinian writer uh, that we've been talking about recently. Uh, that, that translation was by Caridad Svich. Uh, but so the first part I read were the words of, of King Minos, and then after that was an exchange uh, between Theseus and the Minotaur with our producer Seth as Theseus, as the, the jerk of the story. Yes. Um, this, is a, this is such an interesting uh, uh, play. I, I had never heard of this before uh, until I ran across this very translation at intranslation.brooklynrail.org, um, because I don't believe it is currently in print in English. I could be wrong on that. I see that it is in print in Spanish, uh, but not in English. Uh, Cortazar has a, a number of really interesting short stories that I read back when I was in college. One of them that I remember really liking is called Axolotl, and it's a story about a man who repeatedly visits an axolotl tank at the Jardin de Paris, and he gradually finds himself transforming into an axolotl as he watches them. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to read that one. Um, uh, uh, you, you sent me a copy to check out. Uh, in fact, a number of his short stories sound just right up my alley, but I've never read anything by uh, Cortazar. Now, uh, another fun thing about this, uh, so some of you might remember that we had a co uh, an opening reading on a previous episode about the Minotaur from uh, 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 Borges' uh, The House of Asterion. Uh, Borges, uh, of course, was also an Argentinian writer, um, perhaps you know one of the most uh, famous Argentinian writers. And uh, it's interesting that this play, The Kings, or Las Reyes, was published in 1947, just a year after Borges wrote uh, that story uh, to begin with, the House of Asterion. Um, oh, is is there like an implication of inspiration or common inspiration between the two? Well, I, I was looking into this because I think a lot of people assumed that uh, Cortazar was inspired by the House of Asterion. Um, Borges himself actually published the play alongside Asterion in the literary journal that he edited in 1947. Uh, but I was I, I was looking at a uh, an, an article titled "The Incessant Return of the Minotaur" by Amy Fraser Yoder, and <laughs> just keeps coming back. <laughs> yeah, and they they write that while it was often assumed that Borges' story influenced Cortazar, there's evidence from letters between Cortazar and Borges that Cortazar might not have read Borges' story previously. So there might be more convergence here than inspiration, but still, it it, it seems that Borges was was very much a fan of this piece. I mean, he published it and obviously how could Borges not like an entire play with all of this 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 beautiful uh, you know poetic language uh, and contemplation of the the labyrinth and the and the the, the various kings uh, that are caught within its grasp 
really, this is what I was just telling you earlier before we started hitting record. You could basically, you could print this play out, you could throw a dart at it, and you could hit, you could find something beautiful. Uh, like there's this whole stretch where, because I should point out that the Minotaur and Theseus have a very long conversation, mm-hmm. uh, considering that most of the time it's just about them fighting. They have a, a long conversation in this play, and there's this whole bit about the the string that Theseus has uh, has 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 wound out behind him, you know, so that he can return, so that he can escape the labyrinth. About how it is like a river flowing out to the ocean. Uh, wow! So it's and, and then the ocean is also the Minotaur's sister. There's there's just a lot of beautiful stuff in it. So even if you're you're not really into reading a lot of unproduced plays, uh, you should you should yeah I recommend you check this out uh, at the website we mentioned earlier. And if you've had a chance to see it, uh, that sounds awesome. I'd love to hear about it. That's uh, interesting that you mentioned the twine as a river, because that goes back to uh, in Ovid, Ovid's telling of the story mm. when he's talking about Daedalus's design of the labyrinth. He describes it as like a river that twists and turns back and forth and waters that churn in upon themselves going this way and that. Ah, oh, that's right. That's right. So this is indeed our, our third episode on the Minotaur, uh, and we wanted to, uh, I guess, kick things off here, first of all, with that, uh, that, that brief reading, uh, but also just to discuss pop culture Minotaurs a little bit uh, and cultural Minotaurs of the more uh, modern era in, in a little bit more, more detail. Um, as far as just cinema goes, I have to say, I, I think it's, it's really hard to find a quality Minotaur in a film or TV uh, I don't know if you've had the same experience, Joe, but I feel like even when the costume or the CGI or overall presentation is solid enough, and Lord knows it often isn't, um, Minotaurs are often presented as just mere beastly brutes, you know? They're, they're, mm. they're, and that, a big part of that is that they are not in the labyrinth. Yes, a minotaur out of its labyrinth is like a hermit crab out of its shell. It's just not even really the same creature, is it? Mm-hmm. The best on-screen minotaur I can think of is actually one that we mentioned in the first episode, which is the one in Jim Henson's Storyteller, Greek Myths, with Michael Gambon as, as Daedalus, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, or at least as the storyteller. Uh, and that that one is really good because you don't get too much of a look at the minotaur, I think, as it should be. You know, it should be glances here and there, and or glances or glimpses, whichever I meant to say. The, but the glimpses you do get are full of terror and pity. It's, it's very good. It conveys sort of both of the meanings of the story as we read it today. The Probably the more original, terrifying reading, but also the subtle reading where you see the monster as an object of, of, of sadness and pity. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Again, that one is is just excellent, and I highly recommend folks check that out if you haven't seen it already. Uh, I, I think it all holds up really well. Uh, David Morrissey, uh, who would go on to, of course, play the governor in The Walking Dead, uh, is in that a young David Morrissey as Theseus. I have never seen The Walking Dead, or I never made it past the second episode. But mm-hmm. uh, but when I was looking at him, first of all, he kind of reminds me of Tom Cruise's creepy looking brother who was in Lost. Do you remember that guy? No, I don't. Tom Cruise's brother was in was on Lost. Seth offers a correction. I was entirely wrong. He his name is uh, William Mapother, and he's Tom Cruise's first cousin, not his brother. But he looks kind of like Tom Cruise, but with an extra dose of boyish charm and creepiness at the same time. <laughs> and he played a role in Lost that was uh, I don't know. Lost ultimately was was such a betrayal, but. But there was a really good moment in the first season involving his his character. But anyway, I thought he kind of looked like him. And in any case, he does look like a jock bully, which is kind of what Theseus is. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think I, I mentioned in a previous episode that uh, John Wood, uh, another great actor of, uh, of the British stage, uh, was in the, the Greek uh, myths um, series as well, playing Minos. But uh, in another episode that's about Daedalus and Icarus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, if you take them all in, you kind of you kind of get in two different, well, really multiple episodes. You get uh, the the story of uh, of Minos and the Minotaur and Theseus. Well, somebody out there who is a filmmaker who is dedicated to practical sets and effects, you make this movie, make the Labyrinth and Minotaur movie. No, no, no green screen set junk. No, uh, no CGI Minotaur. I want a good costume with really classic makeup effects and and go all out. 
Now, in terms of minotaurs out of context, there is one example that I think works really well, and it is from the music video for Einstruzinda Neubotten's uh, song Sabrina, uh, which is which is on YouTube. I, I, I recommend. I have no idea what check that it is. Out. <laughs> oh, it's well, Einstruzinda Neubotten is a is, is this this great uh, German band. They started out more industrial or post uh, industrial, but then uh, they they kind of uh, changed their sound as they went. And they they have a number of great songs, but this particular video consists entirely of this sad minotaur uh, that's that's well brought to life uh putting on makeup in this really uh dank kind of uh, bathroom i'm looking at it now yeah it's that's all that happens in it but it, it captures this it captures the sadness of minotaur uh, at least that uh, that i feel like should be a vital component alongside the savage minotaur this video is strong with the cinematography of a 90s anti-drug PSA commercial. <laughs> yeah, Where yeah, kind of. It's got that that gross green film on everything, like the this is your brain on drugs thing. Yeah, it does It does remind me in some ways of, uh, of various PSAs I remember from uh, uh, as a child watching uh, Canadian television, where there might be something that's like really weird and fantastic, and then at the end you find out, oh, this is the message. <laughs> <laughs> Now, before we get a little more into the science of mazes and uh, and zoonotic diseases, you promised at some point that you were going to come back to talk a little bit about the Minotaur in D&D. You mentioned this in the first episode. Oh, uh, yeah. So if, if the, the error is to take the Minotaur out of its place and just present it as a mere brute, uh, Dungeons and Dragons has certainly been guilty of that. Uh, and, and, and not only Dungeons and Dragons, but just individual dungeon masters who, of course, have the, the <laughs> The right. power to to take a, a minotaur and drop him in anywhere. You go into to, the you go into the inn. The innkeep is a minotaur. Right. Ask you what you'd like to drink. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you know, there's a lot of room to to misuse the minotaur. Uh, you know, at an individual level. But uh, I will say that at least in the fifth edition, uh, I can't really speak to earlier editions because I just don't have those numbers in my head. But uh, in the most recent edition, they do have a very high wisdom score and they have an ability called uh, Labyrinthine Recall. Uh, so the minotaur can perfectly recall any path it has traveled, which I feel like that ability, at, le- it, at the very least, it is a nudge to the dungeon master. Hey, you should put this minotaur somewhere where it can take advantage of this. You should create some sort of labyrinth, be that labyrinth an actual, you know, stone dungeon or perhaps something like a hedge maze or like a really, um, you know, complicated city. I mean, there's so many different directions you could go in there. And in terms of actual adventure modules and campaigns, uh, the campaign Out of the Abyss does put minotaurs in a place referred to as the labyrinth, uh, which which is very nice. And I thought they did a good job in that. Uh, the labyrinthine recall thing seems like it would also close to the adventurers the option of certain strategic uh, uh, responses to the minotaur. Like you can't do to the minotaur what Danny does to Jack at the end of the Shining movie, right? You can't get right. him turned around in his own maze. Like he's going to know his way around. Yeah, he is the ultimate master of this location, unless you have some sort of privileged knowledge or magical um, abilities that have been gifted to you by uh, other parties. So I was thinking about mazes, and I actually had an etymological question that I had to look up, because I was wondering, are the English words maze and amaze, as in amazing, related? And it turns out that they are. They probably do come from the same linguistic root. So by around the beginning of the 14th century, the noun maze meant something like a delusion or a uh, bewilderment, a confusion. And this is related to the Old English verb amazien or A-M-A-S-I-A-N, meaning to confuse. And so uh, the origins of this word are not exactly clear. I I saw one comparison on the online etymological dictionary to a Norwegian word, uh, mass, M-A-S, or mace, meaning exhausting labor, which I thought would be a kind of interesting place for that concept to come from. Uh, But uh, apparently maze came to have its current meaning in English, meaning something like a labyrinth, a structure with branching paths around the end of the 14th century. But uh, but so now, you know, like amazement is related to a maze. They're the same thing. And they come from the idea of bewilderment, confusion and and being confounded. Oh, wow. 
But hey, practical survival question. Imagine you are not Theseus. You're not armed with a with a sword or whatever. You don't have a ball of twine to make your way out of a maze. If you were just one of the Athenian youths finding yourself trapped in an unfamiliar maze, could you get out? Is there actually a strategy for optimizing the solution of a maze? Other than trying to cut through walls, obviously you can't do that. Well, I mean, I think a lot of us have heard the whole uh, only take uh, like right hand turns, right? Keep yeah, turning right. Exactly. So it depends on how the maze is constructed, but that actually is a successful strategy. For most mazes, the solution, if you don't have a ball of twine, is what's known as the right hand rule. Uh, and that's actually arbitrary. It could be the right hand or the left hand rule. But it's as simple as this. So you reach out with your right hand and you touch the right side wall of the corridor. And then you just proceed forward without ever taking your hand off the wall. So if you come to a dead end, you pivot around with your hand still touching the right side of the wall. Uh, again, the same thing would work with the left hand. It's also known as uh, the wall follower algorithm. And always following the same wall surface will mean that you bear in the same direction at every turn, which is what you were saying. If you always make the right turn, eventually you will find your way out. This will, uh, you know, even if you hit a dead end, you'll double back on your path. And if you keep following this method, you could actually solve the maze even blindfolded because it, it doesn't matter what orientation you have mentally, you will just always be executing a new pathway unless you're trying to get yourself out of a dead end. But there is a catch here, and the catch is that for this to work, the maze has to be what they call simply constructed. And what that means is all of the walls of the maze are connected to the outer wall or to each other. And this method will not necessarily work in a maze with what are called island walls, walls that are not connected to the outer boundary. And with these types of mazes, you can just end up going in circles around a wall segment in the middle. Uh, I've actually read about some funny cases of people going uh, people going into corn mazes, you know, these things for fun, or hedge mm -hmm. mazes, and they get stuck in there and they try to use the wall follower pathway to get out, but they get stuck in there because they're just tracing around some isolated internal wall that doesn't connect to the outer walls forced to wander forever until the fall festival uh, employees <laughs> come and retrieve you but there there is another catch so even if you are in a maze with island walls walls that don't connect to the outer boundary you can still use the right hand rule if you use it beginning at the entrance because if you start at the entrance and you stick to it you will never actually start following an island wall to begin with because you'll always be attached to a wall that's attached to the exterior boundary so if you start doing the doing the right hand rule at the entrance it will work Though it might make the maze less fun. I mean, depending on whether this is like a, a torture human sacrifice scenario or just like a corn maze for fun. Right. But I guess if you if, if you use the, uh, the right hand rule and it's the right kind of maze, you are in a sense transforming a maze into a labyrinth. If we're going to that, uh, uh, if you're using those terms exclusively for a maze is something with many different branching paths in which you can get lost and a labyrinth as being this complex system through which there is only one path uh, and you don't have to, to think about what you're doing as you follow it. Right. Multicursal versus unicursal. You're turning yeah. it into a unicursal pathway uh, where you are, again, just submitting to the design of the maze and taking decision making entirely out of it. Right. It's kind of like if you go to Ikea and you just decide, I'm just going to go with the I'm not going to buy anything, but I'm just going to just go straight. Right. I'm, going I'm just going to gonna follow the path. Buy everything my right hand touches. <laughs> you end up in a maze of meatballs. <laughs> but thinking about how to solve mazes also got me uh, thinking about another tangent here, which is the role that mazes have played in the history of psychological research so much that in a way, the maze became almost a, a physical emblem of the discipline of psychology in popular culture, like, uh, well, especially the behaviorist schools, of course. So if you saw a research psychologist in a movie made in the 1940s or 50s, what were they doing? I mean, they're probably running rats through a maze, right? Like every yeah. psychology lab in a movie has a rat maze in it. Yeah, and you th I feel like there are a fair number of uh, educational shorts that also feature uh, footage of mice and mazes. And here I think the maze as a research tool emerges in a very interesting relationship with the maze of myths. So uh, consider the following with the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur in mind. 
I, I was reading an article about the history of maze research by a psychologist named uh, C. James Goodwin in the Monitor on Psychology, which is the magazine of the American Psychological Association or the APA. And Goodwin begins by producing a really unbelievable quote from a neo-behaviorist psychologist named Edward Chase Tolman, who was president of the APA at the time he, he uttered these words. This was part of his yearly address to the APA in 1937, and this is what he said. Everything important in psychology can be investigated, in essence, through the continued experimental and theoretical analysis of the determinants of rat behavior at a choice point in a maze. So everything. 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 Everything you could want to know about minds can be understood by watching how rats behave in a maze. Like, given enough time and enough rats and enough mazes, we can fully understand minds. I mean, undoubtedly, it's useful for various things, but oh, everything sure. is, is going a bit far. Yeah, so it seems. I, I mean, I guess to be fair to Tolman, I think maybe he was intentionally overstating his case a bit to be provocative. But this is actually indicative of like a powerful strain of thinking in the history of behaviorist psychology, basically that psychological science is not really concerned with internal phenomena. Remember, this was the behaviorist school, so it's not really about thoughts or feelings and uh, and also the belief that differences between species are not necessarily very relevant brains in general were just sort of imagined as learning and conditioning machines that produce behavior based on how they've been conditioned. And so careful study of how rats behave under various controlled conditions and how they respond to various incentives and stimuli and training can eventually tell you pretty much everything that you would want to know about brains, even about human psychology. Now, I think this is clearly a, an extremely misguided point of view, but an interesting question is, how did you get to there? Like, how, how did you get to the place where somebody could say that about rats and mazes and not immediately be mocked for it? You know, like, it just sounds so ridiculous. So maybe we should take a break, and then when we come back, we can talk about the origins of rat maze research. All right, we're back. So... How did we get so many mice in these mazes? <laughs> okay, so uh, I mentioned this article by, uh, by C. James Goodwin, and Goodwin writes in his article that most historians of science agreed that the animal maze as a research tool was really pioneered in the 1890s by researchers at Clark University. Specifically, this was a, a couple of graduate students named Willard Small and Linus Klein, who were working in the lab of the early American psychologist Edmund Sanford. Uh, though sometime around the, the same time, the psychologist Edward Thorndike also experimented with building a sort of maze for research on baby birds. He did this by stacking books in odd configurations, but he, he thought of these uh, structures as pens. But uh, the mazes constructed in the Sanford lab at Clark University had an interesting couple of points of inspiration. So one was in the uh, the structures built by rats under a porch. Uh, so Klein, Small, and Sanford were interested in studying the home-finding ability of rats. Home-finding, of course, is a very important skill for many motile animals. How do you find your way back to home base after leaving to forage? Or how do you find your way through confusing twists and turns to locate a source of food or another familiar location. And so Klein recalled an incident where there had been digging under the porch at a cabin on his father's farm in Virginia. And when the porch was excavated, they discovered that there were these runways that had been left, quote, by large feral rats to their nests under the porch. And the runways, Klein thought, somehow resembled mazes. And this led to the idea of designing a test environment based on a maze to study the psychology of rats. And the model they ended up using for this maze was the Hampton Court maze in England. And Robert, I've got a picture for you to look at here. This is still a popular tourist attraction. It's a hedge maze just outside London that was commissioned by William III around the year 1700. And it is said to be the oldest surviving hedge maze in England. Yeah, this is a very impressive, very famous maze kind of trapezoidal in shape. Uh, I think they, they restructured it somewhat to make it more of a rectangle in the lab version. 
the irony is that mice would have no problem at all with with the actual with the, uh, Hampton Court maze. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you just cut underneath. Yeah, yeah. So of course you had to create one that's much more unforgiving to the body of a mouse. Uh, so what they did was uh, at the Clark Lab they made a tiny version for rodents for rats with slight redesigns. Uh, it had a wooden floor and walls made of wire mesh. And so research with rats there in this maze went on for several years, mostly under Willard Small. And uh, Goodwin writes the following, quote, This was a time when psychology was the science of mental life, so it was not surprising that Small described his maze study in, quote, mentalistic terms, rather than in the kind of language one might expect to read in a more modern learning study. So instead of reporting results in terms of error rates and time to completion, Small tried to infer what the rats were doing as they made their way through the maze. And this led to observations such as, and here uh, I'm going to quote from Small, when describing a rat almost making a wrong turn in the maze, Small wrote that the rat, quote, hesitated as if scratching his head, then entered this dead-end path slowly and doubtfully. Only a few steps, however, then with a sudden turn and a triumphant flick of his tail, he returned to the correct path. Which is funny, because that does not sound like scientific writing. <laughs> Yes, hesitated as if scratching his head. Yes. Yeah, the triumphant flick of his tail. I mean, this this is a kind of qualitative description that's unusual to more modern psychological methods, where in modern psychological methods, uh, you would try to turn everything into unambiguous quantitative data points and mm -hmm. remove the subjective judgment of the researcher as much as possible. But here, Small is just saying, like, I wonder what little Mr. Rat is thinking as he goes to the left or the right. Well, I think he I think he feels triumphant now. I think he feels like a big strong rat now. I know. He's getting dangerously close to writing a smashing pumpkin song. <laughs> You know, I've always had questions about that song, because if the world is a vampire sent to drain, what is it draining? The world contains everything, doesn't it? The way the world is invoked there. It's like the sum, sum total of existence is sent to drain. What's outside of itself to drain? Oh, I think it is outer reality versus inner reality, right? Oh, okay. It's noumena and phenomena. Yeah, I guess so. That's the way I always interpret it. I mean, not that I spent a lot of time really analyzing the lyrics of that song, but... Um, but that would be my guess. So the phenomena is a vampire sent to drain the noumena. Okay. Yeah. Or I guess you could say the maze or the cage is the thing, the environment that contains the uh, the rat or the minotaur, or what have you. Here's a twist. What if that song is sung from the point of view of a minotaur? <laughs> like among the Athenian youths, there is a secret destroyer. Ah, you know, I don't think I even looked for actual minotaur songs. Uh, there may be some really good ones out there, and I, and I just don't know about them. Is there not a Misfit song? Let's see here. Is there? They just say the Minotaur, and then Uyu, and then it's the Minotaur again, or something. Seems like I can't really, I can't really find much of anything. But yeah, whether you're talking about the standards of of modern research today or the uh, the behaviorist research that would come into vogue in the 20th century, in any case, you know, you would not want to say, "I think that the rat is thinking that the world is a vampire sent to drain." You just want to like neutrally describe unambiguous objective behaviors and 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 avoid being anthropomorphic. Uh, and Small's research was criticized even by some people at the time for being anthropomorphic, like trying to in habit the mind of the rat as if it had human thoughts. Nevertheless, Small made some interesting and influential discoveries, uh, and these included the idea that rats could learn navigation and home finding with very little reliance on their sense of sight. Uh, two of the rats in his study group were blind, and yet they learned the maze just as well as the sighted rats. And the use of senses other than sight can make sense when you consider that rats are often navigating almost completely dark spaces or navigating spaces at night, you know, under floorboards and so forth. And Small believed he had established with his research that rats learned through a gradual accumulation of direct associations between sensory stimuli in the maze and patterns of success. And this would later prove foundational to the behaviorist school of psychology, which was very focused on associative learning and gradual conditioning as the root of animal behavior. But probably more important than what these studies actually found in their conclusions was the 
precedent they set for research methods because Small's research led to this huge surge in maize research, much of which used rats as the study animal. The most classic variation is that you can mess around with independent variables to create an average learning curve for rats by, you know, you run rats through a maze multiple times and you chart the time it takes them to complete the maze and the number of errors they make along the way with each successive attempt, which is a very useful tool for studying a certain kind of learning and how various things affect that kind of learning, like drugs and so forth. But some maze studies also used other animals. Uh, at the very simple end, we've talked before about the the sort of maze-like research done on worms that was focused on planaria. Uh, this was the origin, actually, of the memory transfer research of James McConnell that we talked about in a couple of full-length episodes that you can check out uh, in our archive called Devourer of Memories. But the short version is that the American psychologist James McConnell believed he had discovered that memories in the form of learned association could be transferred from one flatworm to another via cannibalism. So you teach one flatworm, grind it up, feed it to another flatworm, and it learns, you know, eat your brains and gain your knowledge. Uh, later research threw some doubts on that conclusion, but there's still interesting ongoing research today hinting that planaria might possibly retain memories after having their heads cut off. So there might be some kind of memory in the bodies that's not just in the brain. And of course, at the opposite end of the scale, you've got studies that actually put humans in full-size mazes uh, with consent, of course, to study their behavior. But anyway, th this huge surge in maze research led to regimes that meant a researcher could make a claim like the one Tolman made in 1937, the idea that basically all you need – to study psychology is some rats in a maze, and he could say that and still be taken seriously. Uh, Tolman's assertion, of course, seems, again, ridiculous on its face today, but maze research does still remain very important, especially in narrower domains like animal motor behavior, problem-solving, spatial memory, and things like that. And mazes are used in studying the effects of particular drugs on behavior. So, like, you could say, does this anti-anxiety drug cause a rat or a crayfish to take one path or the other rather than, you know, uh, freezing paralyzed at T-junction? Or does a drug promote obsessive recurring checks of the same path and things like that? Now, in looking at what kind of maze research is going on today, I came across one thing that I that I, I was thoroughly amazed by and very disturbed by, which is <laughs> this invention known as automated tea mazes. I guess there's actually nothing more nefarious about this than there is about a regular maze uh, for, <laughs> for research, but watching video of it somehow kind of bothered me. Basically an automated tea maze is a robot maze with movable walls that can be raised and lowered to alter the maze path as the animal proceeds. And, I don't know. It it feels very House of Leaves to me. Yeah, I don't think we we brought up a House of Leaves yet, by the way. Uh, but that is a, a a great use of a maze and a minotaur uh, in is uh, uh, a literary example. I'm actually in the middle of reading it right now for the first time, so I, I haven't finished yet. I don't want to spoil too much for people, but there, yeah. It, the middle of that book is a good place to be because the book is is intentionally, quite intentionally, is a labyrinth, and you are supposed to, I think, feel to a certain extent, lost within it and hunted within it. Uh, it it's one of the more unnerving things I, I think I've read in, you know, over the past 10 years. Oh, yeah. Extremely creepy. Now, in terms of labyrinths that change and move around you, first of all, I think Daedalus would be proud. Uh, like this mm. is exactly the sort of thing that you could imagine, uh, uh, you know, the, the great inventor having created. It also reminds me of, of the wonderful cinematic maze that we find in Jim Henson's Labyrinth. Uh, there uh, in the the early phases of that, uh, they go through, you know, Sarah uh, goes through different parts of the labyrinth to try to get to the goblin city to rescue her brother. Uh, but there's a, there's one section in particular where she begins to realize that she can't mark the path behind her because the path keeps changing. Goblins keep moving things around, moving stones that she's marked, or even just seemingly magically, she'll turn around and what was once a, um, a passage is now just a blank wall. I recall this being a plot point in the movie Cube as well. Oh, yes, the very, very cube-like as well, this video. There's no Minotaur in Cube, but there should have been. 
Well, in a way, there are a lot of like, all the traps are kind of like mini minotaurs. They are killing instruments. And again, coming back to the idea that the minotaur is sort of the kill function of the labyrinth. Uh, it just has a lot of little kill functions instead of one uh, great all-encompassing kill function. <laughs> I want to come back and say, I, I, in all honesty, I don't want to throw uh, aspersions on an automated tea maze, which seems like a perfectly useful research tool. Uh, it seems like they're actually mainly to automatically track data on the movements of the animal. So it, it makes the human rat runner obsolete. Very useful. <laughs> Uh, but before we move on from rats and mazes, I wanted to talk about one more thing that I found interesting, and it ties into something I know you've covered on at least one older episode, uh, Rob, which was uh, the idea of cargo cult science that was explored in this famous talk given by the physicist Richard Feynman in 1974. He was giving a commencement address to Caltech. Uh, I guess it was the graduating class or something in that's usually who it would be at a commencement address. I don't know why I said probably. Uh, and he was you know, talking about various subjects, uh, pseudoscience, uh, the need for rigor in, in designing experiments, scientific research. And, uh, and so in simple terms, I think the idea of cargo cult science is it's a bad form of science where uh, there is not enough rigorous effort devoted to trying to disprove hypotheses rather every basically you just kind of establish a hypothesis based on what data you've already collected and then further occurrences of the same types of data are taken as confirmation of the hypothesis so for an example, I'm just making this up. If you were to find that rats run mazes faster in the daytime than they do in the nighttime, and then you say, oh, I'm going to fit a hypothesis to that. Uh, it's because they come from the planet Krypton and are given <laughs> extra strength by the rays of our yellow sun during the day. And then subsequent studies finding yet again that rats run mazes faster in the daytime than in the, than in the nighttime. Those are taken as confirmation of the yellow sun hypothesis when they don't actually provide any support for that at all. So in general, Feynman in the speech is advocating that researchers adhere to more rigorous methods to rule out false positives and things like that. And, and they uh, avoid the temptation to rush to publish with sloppy experimental designs. And so uh, I can read from the part of his speech here where he talks about rats and mazes. He, uh, he says, quote, there have been many experiments running rats through all kinds of mazes and so on with little clear result. But in 1937, a man named Young did a very interesting one. He had a long corridor with doors all along one side where the rats came in and doors along the other side where the food was. He wanted to see if he could train the rats to go in at the third door down from wherever he started them off. So what he's looking for is a, uh, a spatial relationship between the entrance door and the food reward door. Will they learn that inference? Uh, and Feynman continues, no, the rats went immediately to the door where the food had been the time before. The question was, how did the rats know? Because the corridor was so beautifully built and so uniform that this was the same door as before. Obviously, there was something about the door that was different from the other doors. So he painted the doors very carefully, arranging the textures on the faces of the doors exactly the same. Still, the rats could tell. Then he thought maybe the rats were smelling the food. So he used chemicals to change the smell after each run. Still, the rats could tell. Then he realized the rats might be able to tell by seeing the lights and the arrangement in the laboratory, like any common-sense person. So he covered the corridor, and still the rats could tell. He finally found that they could tell by the way the floor sounded when they ran over it, and he could only fix that by putting his corridor in sand. So he covered one after another of all possible clues, and finally was able to fool the rats so they had to learn to go in the third door. If he relaxed any of his conditions, the rats could tell. Now, from a scientific standpoint, this is an A number one experiment. That is the experiment that makes rat running experiments sensible because it uncovers the clues that the rat is really using, not what you think it's using. And that is the experiment that tells exactly what conditions you have to use in order to be careful and control everything in an experiment with rat running. 
I looked into the subsequent history of this research. The subsequent experiment and the one after that never referred to Mr. Young. They never used any of his criteria of putting the corridor on sand or being very careful. They just went right on running rats in the same old way and paid no attention to the great discoveries of Mr. Young, and his papers are not referred to because he didn't discover anything about the rats. In fact, he discovered all the things you have to do to decipher something about rats. But not paying attention to experiments like that is a characteristic of cargo cult science. Now, just as a follow-up, I was uh, reading an article by uh, Ross Pomeroy on Real Clear Science that was about this story that Feynman tells, trying to identify who this unsighted researcher was. Uh, the, the author of this article, Pomeroy, he, he thinks that this is probably referring to the animal scientist Paul Thomas Young, but it's not known for sure who Feynman is referring to. If we take Feynman's word that you know he was familiar with this unpublished research and stuff, uh, it's it's very sad that this went forward, but it's such a wonderful illustration of how difficult and tedious it can be just to get to the point where you can start to establish conclusions in animal yeah. research. I also love in, in, in Feynman's writings here that you, you also get the sense of the, the construction of a maze, you know, like mm -hmm. this, a thing that is, that is just there to confuse and, and, and provides no clear solutions to itself or to the world. Well, yeah, it's really funny because he, so design, it, it highlights how designing a, a maze for a rat is kind of different than designing a maze for a human, right? Because mm -hmm. rats, uh, might because of their, their ecological niche, they might have, senses that are attuned to things that humans wouldn't even imagine would be a yeah. useful clue in, in, you know, cheating and seeing through the confusion that the maze is supposed to provide. Yeah. Yeah. We have to remember that, that rats, uh, other organisms that we might put in a maze, they live in a different sense realm than we do. Like their dependence on, um, you know, sight versus smell, et cetera, are going to be rather different than ours. And then their, you know, their, their, their smell abilities are going to be beyond, uh, be beyond what we have at our disposal. Maybe I'm reaching here, but I was imagining some interesting parallels here but between the, the, the maze as a psychological research instrument and the maze of myth. Because what they're doing in both cases is trying to strip away extraneous detail and context from from the decision of the character, whether that's a, an animal that's the subject of research or a character in a story, and just sort of like isolate one salient trait at a time. Mm -hmm. That's often what mythology does. Like it boils down a human to courage embodied and has no other really identifiable uh, human traits in, in that moment in the story. And the same thing for the rat. You're trying to like take away all of the things that make a rat a rat, except its ability to decide between X and Y based on Z. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Though I guess it doesn't exactly work with Theseus because Theseus does bring bring context from the outside world into the maze, right? He comes in armed with tools and with information that he technically should not have if this were a fair fight. Right, right. He has he has broken the game. Yeah, he has corrupted the experiment. These are not yes. legitimate results. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Uh, now, Robert, is it time to talk about the Minotaur and zoonotic diseases? Yes, it is. Uh, I, I was actually delighted to run to run across this paper uh, titled "Europe: The Bull and the Minotaur: The Biological Legacy of a Neolithic Love Story." <laughs> Uh, this is by Harold Brusso, uh, published in the journal Environmental Microbiology back in two thousand and nine. Now, Harold uh, Brousseau is a research scientist, and he's uh, the author of the book, The Quest for Food, A Natural History of Eating. And incidentally, he's also an author uh, on several COVID-19 papers to come out this year. Yeah, I saw that. I, I looked him up. It looks like he's affiliated with the Nestle Research Center in Switzerland. And, uh, and at some point, I think I also saw him affiliated with the University of Geneva. But the main things I saw recently were the, the Nestle Research Center. Uh, I got to say, he's got a very... Uh, unusual writing style for scientific papers is very whimsical. Yes, definitely whimsical. Um, it, it, and you get a sense of that from the title here as well. Uh -huh. 
Basically, in this article, Brousseau uses the Minotaur myth as a means of discussing the Neolithic Revolution and the manner in which the domestication of goats and cattle, etc., opened the door for new pathogens. Uh, As he points out, hunters only had limited contact with prey, and most close contact occurred after the animal's death. Not to say this is 100% safe for the human hunter, but, quote, All the mechanisms which microbes induced in the infected host to assure their transmission, like sneezing, coughing, or diarrhea, are not any longer operative in the dead animal. Okay, so he's saying that despite the fact that people who hunted for a living would be coming in contact with animals and their body fluids pretty often – People who do animal agriculture are actually more at risk for animal transmitted diseases than hunters are. Right, because suddenly you're not just hunting the animal down, killing it, process, and then processing it, uh, which, you know, certainly processing the animal could come with some risks, uh, but it's once dead, it's not going to sneeze on you. Mm-hmm. But with dom- domestication, humans come into close contact with these animals all the time. They come into close contact with sick animals. Uh, as well as the animal's dung, which was valuable for fuel and fertilizer, uh, uh, and also another pathway for disease. And you're going to be spending time. I mean, I just imagine there's more time with the animal. Like you kill an animal when you're hunting and then you kind of deal with it. But like, but that's one animal for a sort of limited period of time while you're processing it or carrying it back to home or wherever. This other thing would be you're just sort of like wandering around with herds of sheep or cows or something all day. And there's a bunch of them all crammed together. Right. And and thus he states that, you know, we can we can safely anticipate, quote, that the early farming society was plagued by new diseases. Zoonosis was feeding new pathogens into the human population. Yeah, that's very interesting to consider. I mean, we we think about the advent of agriculture in, in the Neolithic period as, you know, one of the progenitors of civilization, but we don't often imagine a lot of the downsides that might have come along with it. And it seems quite possible that he's correct, that zoonotic diseases, an increase in diseases transmitted from animals to humans would be one of those consequences. Yeah. So he writes that humanity's growth simply created new opportunities for these microbes, which in turn discovered humans as, uh, quote, an attractive life support. Um, uh, This, he says, follows a principle that marine microbiologists call killing off the winning population. So he points out that if viruses had co-evolved with their host during evolution, uh, we would expect the closest relatives of measles viruses in paramyxoviruses of primates. Instead, however, the most important human pathogens, such as highly transmissible agents like measles and smallpox, are closely related to viruses from domesticated animals. Measles, for instance, circulates exclusively in the human population, but is a close relative of rinderpest virus uh, that is found in cattle. And, of course, this uh, is not limited just to ancient times. I mean – Human viruses emerging from cultivated animal stocks still happens today. I mean, I think it's pretty common for flu strains to come out of, say, like pigs or birds that are domesticated by humans. Now, Brusso also points out that the close relationship between smallpox and cowpox was actually really important for the history of vaccination. Uh, Physician Edward Jenner noticed that milkmaids who had acquired cowpox were resistant to smallpox. He also points out that tuberculosis is caused by the uh, mycobacterium uh, tuberculosis uh, complex uh, to which M. bovis belongs. And he lists several other examples and also discusses the idea popularized by uh, Jared Diamond in Guns, Germs, and Steel that Europeans brought with them their old world viruses, which they had, uh, th- which they had generated out of their history of animal domestication, all this time spent in close confines with their domesticated species. Now, I will say with reference to Diamond, uh, I, it's been a long time since I read that book. It was years ago I read Guns, Germs, and Steel. Uh, I can tell that he, Diamond has recently been subject to a lot of criticism by experts in the fields <laughs> he covers. Uh, if uh, So I, I, I don't know. I don't want to be too unfair, but it, it seems like there are a lot of allegations of kind of cherry picking the thing that often happens when somebody's got a very broad sweeping explanation of history. Um, But I do think one of the basic genres of things explored in that book is interesting, which is 
the broad thrust of it is trying to explain human history in terms of environmental biogeography. So showing that, uh, you know, what peoples come to power at what place in time can at least in large part be explained by often otherwise overlooked environmental, biological, and geographical factors, such as like what types of crops grow here, or what types of animals nearby could be domesticated, mm -hmm. what kinds of pathogens are people exposed to, and things like that. So uh, so whatever one would think of Diamond himself or, or his fuller argument, I do think it's important to remember that history is not just a battle of wills and virtues between like powerful individual people and their personalities. It's also very much about mosquitoes and rainfall yeah. Patterns and farming equipment and stuff like that. Now, now to come back to to Brusso here, uh, the idea that he's presenting here isn't that the Neolithic door opens and immediately all of these uh, zoonotic diseases rush in. Um, this would have taken place over in mean, a long period of time. Uh, it still opens the door, though. Uh, but sometimes the uh, these these basically these uh, zoonotic events are going to occur uh, just throughout that uh, the, the history that unfolds. For example, measles seems to have emerged from Rinder Past between uh, CE 1100 and CE 1200, and is pointed out by uh, Farouz et al. in Origin of Measles of the Measles Virus uh, divergence uh, from Rinder Pest virus between uh, likely occurred between the 11th and 12th centuries that was in virology journal in 2010 uh, and they were likely limited outbreaks prior to this uh, when the pathogen wasn't fully adapted to humans yet and then Brousseau also points out that there were population issues to consider as well um, you know as the duration of epidemics are influenced by population density so uh, again not only you know in the wake of the uh, you know the Neolithic revolution we get to the point where we are we are building cities we are living in closer confines to each other and we're creating not only the the environments in which a, a pathogen could leap from one species to another, but also these robust environments in which a pathogen could then spread, uh, you know, massively through a larger human population. Yeah, this is all interesting and important to consider. Uh, so I'm wondering, where does the Minotaur come in? Ah, yes, the Minotaur. Uh, so uh, there is a Minotaur in all of this. Um, and uh, and he, he sets it up rather nicely, I think. He says, Generations of poets, philosophers, and psychologists have interpreted and reinterpreted ancient Greek myths. I will thus take the liberty to add a biological interpretation <laughs> to this strange story. So, you know, I think he's being very clear about the fact that he's not making an argument that the Minotaur is about um, uh, zoonotic diseases. But he's saying, I'm going to take the Minotaur and its myth, and I am going to use it uh, to make a statement about uh, to, about this, to, to explain something or attempt to explain something about this relationship between animals, humans, and uh, their pathogens. Okay, so it's not like there's actually a good case that zoonotic diseases are literally the historical inspiration of the Minotaur myth, but it does work pretty amazingly as a metaphor. Yeah, he does a great job with it. Again, he's a, kind of a whimsical uh, writer, uh, especially in this piece. Okay, let's hear it. So a uh, point he, he you know re relates the Minotaur myth a bit, but points not only to the Minotaur but also to uh, you know the myth of Zeus and his bull form seducing the princess Europa or Europe and taking her uh, to Crete, where he impregnates her with three sons. One of those three sons is Minos. Uh, Europa's brothers then search the known world for her, and uh, and then Brousseau writes this quote. The paths of Europe's brothers recall partly the migrations of the early farmers from the Near East into Europe and North Africa, partly Phoenician colonization. The too close relationship of Minos' wife with a bull leads to a children-eating chimera. Stretching a bit of the fantasy, I would interpret this monster as the species-crossing virus derived from the new close contact between cattle and farmer. The labyrinth might be a type of quarantine imposed on infected subjects. Sir Evans, the excavator of the Minoic Crete, suggests that it reflects the plan of the royal palace in Gnosis. Some viruses are bovine human chimeras like Minotaur, which both ate the young children of the earlier inhabitants of Europe. This myth might thus keep the memory of the hardship following the encounter of the cattle farmers with the hunter-gatherers of prehistoric Europe. <laughs> And then the rest of the article deals primarily with examples of this and discussions uh, of its import. 
That's great. I mean, I would say to reiterate, of course, uh, I'm not convinced and I don't think he's necessarily making the case that actually this was the literal inspiration of the myth, but Mm -hmm. it is a really awesome metaphor. The idea that the introduction of domesticated livestock such as cattle and sheep and stuff into the lives of humans would have these echoes throughout history that have biological implications. In the myth, they are the biological implications of creating a hybrid monster. In reality, the biological implications are creating uh, these zoonotic diseases that are in a way a hybrid type being because they jump from one species to another when you're living in close contact long enough. And even though the inspiration of the myth is probably not direct in any way, I mean, I do wonder about a kind of loose un semi-conscious connection in that like isn't there always a sort of quiet wordless unease about civilization and its products and it just shows up again and again every generation even while we enjoy the fruits of civilization like we enjoy uh, the stability of food supply and the opportunity for the diversification of labor and all of that all the stuff we get from a settled urban existence from agriculture from technology and so forth Isn't there in every generation a new expression of the feeling that something is kind of wrong with all this, that that it is somehow perverted or dangerous, even monstrous, and that people should somehow get back to nature in one way or another? Some version of this philosophy is always there, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, really, to come back to the to the idea of the labyrinth itself and and the other creations of Daedalus, there's this I you know there's so much of that science fictional energy, that anxiety concerning technology uh, in this figure. You know, what if we created something that lifted us up on high, but also led to our destruction? Uh, what what if we created something so elegantly designed that it was too confusing for even its creator to escape? That sort of thing. Yeah, totally. I mean, you could look at a million different kinds of technology as essentially the labyrinth, the thing that becomes so complicated, it escapes the intentions of its creator. And uh, yeah, I mean, an obvious place to look at that would be artificial intelligence. I mean, people often use the... uh, People often use the metaphor of Pandora's box there. Like, are you opening the box? Who knows what will come out? But the labyrinth is also a pretty good metaphor for, for what's happening with AI. Yeah. And, and there is always the concern that there will be the Minotaur within it as well. The thing that is not just passively anti-human, but actively anti-human. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's easy to imagine that kind of thing with AI, because at least AI reaches such a level of complexity that you're imagining it almost as an agent that you can't control. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think you can even apply this idea of uh, our, our perennial anxiety or suspicions about the, the downsides of, of civilization and its technological products um, to, to earlier innovations, even things as seemingly simple as agriculture, because in fact, agriculture comes with tons of consequences that would not have been predicted by the people who invented it. It comes with risk of zoonotic diseases. It comes with changes in diet and how that affects human life and a million other things. Oh, yeah. I mean, many of the the catastrophic problems that we're dealing with today in our world are, uh, you know, the the end results of this, these initial revolutions. But you mentioned Pandora's box earlier. Uh, So I want to come back just one more time to Brousseau here, because uh, he he has this particularly haunting closing to the paper. Uh, And again, this is from 2009, in which he considers how modern global environmental changes will lead to another, quote, highly dynamic phase of viral transmissions into the human population. He writes, quote, Viruses must be the dark side of the heritage from the Neolithic Revolution. To remain with Greek myths, they might correspond to a half-open Pandora's box, a poison gift of the bull god Zeus to mankind. Humans go now into a phase of globalization whose ecological impact might represent a full opening of this cursed box. Man is today a major evolutionary force, and we can safely anticipate that man-made environmental changes will lead to a new deal in our relationship with microbes. When the diseases had left the box, the Greek myth told that only hope remained in the box. Today, we are probably better served with science as our best defense against surprise attacks from the viral empire uh, than with the principal hope. Ooh, get some chills from that. I mean, yeah. to, to say nothing against hope, I mean, hope is good, but don't show up with a hope to a science fight. Yeah, or if you're going to bring hope in one hand, bring science in the other. 
All right. So there you have it. This was episode three of our um, journey through the labyrinth, our consideration of the Minotaur uh, and and the myth that it emerges out of, the the culture it emerges out, out of, the various ideas that it is still stirring in the human imagination today. Uh, this one was a lot of fun. Yeah, totally. And we have got so much more October stuff for you. We're busting at the seams here. Yes, yes, there's so yeah, yeah. We, we've we've got we got so many more ideas to go. I think we even still have a few ideas to come up with, but but it's going to be a full month of uh, of Halloween uh, related wonder. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, if you want to catch up on our current Halloween offerings, uh, explore our past Halloween offerings or some of our past uh, myth-related episodes, you know, such as our our study of uh, the Medusa from earlier this year, well, you can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to find us, like, really quickly, you can just go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, and that will take you to the iHeart listing for this show. And if you do go there, there's a place you can click on somewhere on that page. Kind of a labyrinth. Uh, you can click on uh, like store or merchandise or what have you. That'll take you to our um, our t-shirt store where we have a few different designs with stuff like our logo, maybe a Medusa or two, that sort of thing. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 